My name is Mason Canrich. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong, and he was eager to tell me what really happened. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more, to give a little more context and information. Our narrative had left Mr. Orente once again in the clutches of the Brotherhood, moments away from experiencing unspeakable torture when, for some reason, they released him. At this stage of their existence, very few people were released by the Brotherhood for any reason. They seemed to assume that everyone was guilty of something, and they were going to find out what it was. Of the few people they did release, most of these were because they thought it a greater torture to let this person endure existence. For Arente to be released intact and relatively unscathed was a minor miracle. At this point, I would like to talk about Ciro Orente, or at least the man who introduced himself to me as such. As this series has progressed more and more, people have weighed into the argument of whether this is the real Ciro Orente, or was there ever a real person by that name. And some just believe the whole thing is made up by me. But let's assume at least my honesty for now. You won't be surprised to learn that I have done some research on him. He knew I would, and only asked me to wait till I had left his company, as he was worried people would come looking for him. I spoke to colleagues and friends who were more familiar with Kassire and asked that they look into it for me. It seems unquestionable that there was a Ciro Orente, born in Kassire to an aristocratic family, and that he served in the Navy for a few years before joining the diplomatic service. Here was where my friends hit a wall. To this day, Kassire is notoriously tight-lipped about its diplomatic service, especially when it begins to blend with its espionage service. It does seem that Orente worked in the embassy for some time in the years running up to the ignition. At this point, I decided to look into this myself, having numerous contacts who could tell me about the goings-on in the city. I woke with a start and jumped to my feet, fists raised and ready to fight. It took me a minute to learn that I was in my apartment. I calmed down a little, but still wary, I grabbed the poker from the fireplace and went round each room. I found nothing untoward and then locked the door. I considered barricading it, but thought that a little ridiculous. I made myself a large drink and gulped it down, the whiskey helping my aching head. Twice in less than a day I'd been beaten unconscious. I tried to piece together what had happened. Turgard. Auric had been prepared to start slicing me up when someone had interrupted him, and then I'd been released. Presumably some new piece of information had come to light that changed my fate. Auric had not been happy about it, that was for sure. Whatever it was, I was truly thankful and quickly made a decision to stop looking into Moray's death. It was enough that I knew he was involved with criminals doing highly legal things, and I could leave it at that. The idea of revenge was ruled out completely, and I really was busy enough. I tried to think of what I'd missed with my kidnapping. Probably some important party or social gathering. I would make amends, send a note of apology and an appropriate gift. The second worst thing to be in this city was a bad guest. Being a bad host was the worst. I was determined to put the events of the past few days behind me and get back to normal. The first thing I did was actually check the time, and was relieved to find it was still ten in the morning, so set about getting ready. I had a bath, shaved, ordered in a nice lunch, and was already beginning to feel like my old self. 
Then there was a loud knock at my door. I put my plate down and looked for my revolver, and then remembered that I had lost it somewhere in the tunnels. Instead, I chose the poker again and went to the door. I opened it a crack and looked out. Standing in the doorway was a woman, tall, short, dark hair, dressed in what was almost like a military uniform with a serious expression on her face. This was the woman who intervened when the Brotherhood had first tried to take me, Captain Chloe Vasker. I asked her what she wanted, and she said she just wanted to talk. I was torn. I owed this woman my life, but she was part of something I was trying to leave behind. I decided to let her in. I opened the door wide and invited her. She glanced down at the poker in my hand, but said nothing. Captain Vasca, I said quietly. With all that had happened since meeting her, I had had little time to reflect on that I had met one of the most famous women in the region. Captain Vasca was loved and hated by many, but to me, without too much of a direct stake in the politics of what she had done, I was impressed with her. After all, she had done something that most would not have even attempted. I offered her to drink, and she declined. She paced round my apartment uneasily, finally asking me to confirm that I was a diplomat. I assured her that I was a diplomat, part of the Kassarian delegation. Then she asked for my help. I had a terrible sense that this would only lead to more trouble. But what else could I say? She had saved me from an extremely painful death at the hands of expert torturers. And why? I was a stranger, and she had risked her life. I told her that, of course, I would help. She then asked me what I knew about smuggling. The whole story came out. Murray's death, the morgue, Medea, the Brotherhood, all of it. The Northern Expansion Company, a brief history by Professor Havant Boschk. Founded by two brothers in 1455, it's an almost suicidal mission to bring back silver from Kurain by trading clocks. The Northern Expansion Company became the most successful business in the history of the world. The brothers, Elias and Kurain Sturian, were forced out from the company, which was almost certainly for the best. They were ambitious adventurers with little business sense, and while they were angry at the situation, they had made a small fortune and certainly did better than they had any right to. The new controllers changed the name, Styrian Exploration, to the Northern Expansion Company, the idea being the company would do most of its business with Kurain and other kingdoms to the north of Bearstone. For a century or two, the company's fortunes were mixed, some years making profits, some a loss. But this opportunity came when the then-director, Rin Artur, convinced the king of Bearstone to let the company handle the profitable trade from the island of Duranto in the king's name. Bearstone was engaged in a bitter war with Valhanden and was grateful to be able to move ships from the island to the more pressing war. It is well understood now that Artur had promised far more than he could deliver and that in all likelihood he would fail. Artur troubled trade in less than five years, and while some of it was certainly due to more efficient administration and better communications, most of it was through the utter ruthlessness of Artur. Durantor was technically an independent kingdom with its own ruler. Verstone had huge influence over the government. The experienced government hands who had warned Artur of pushing the people too far before they revolted smiled to themselves with the news of the revolt reached Bearstone. But with only a handful of soldiers, Artur won the war. He crushed the rebels, arrested their king, and declared the island ready to submit to direct 
Bostonian rule. After that amazing, unbelievable, almost impossible success, company soldiers were deployed all over in the world in a familiar pattern of protecting weaker nations. The company knowingly made itself a villain the Barrow's government could use. Whenever some unpleasant task had to be carried out abroad, it was the company who did it. It gave the Barrow's government some distance from the acts done by the company, and occasionally there would be investigations and reports and a reprimand every now and then. But crucially, the company kept doing the work. There is no rival to the Northern Expansion Company, certainly not in Barrowstone, but also not anywhere else in the world. The partnership seemed doomed to fail. How could a sovereign government give such power to a private company? How could the company allow such government interference? But it worked, and undoubtedly the position of Barrowstone as the one of, if not the, most powerful countries in the world is due to this unusual partnership. And so, we come to the third of the three emperors, Chancellor Ro Hadrius. At the time, the man was a political colossus. Out of 19 years, he had been chancellor for 16 of them. Often, a long reign in ballrist politics means the accumulation of scandal and blame, but with Hadrius, it just seemed to cement his power, almost as if there was no alternative to him. Amazingly, Hadrius's death saw his party lose power, perhaps because, for many, Hadrius had been the party. Hadrius believed wholeheartedly in Barist supremacy around the world and certainly utilized the country's vast wealth to achieve it. Hadrius had replaced kings, subverted governments, and redrawn maps to better suit Baristone and certainly seemed to have more than he wanted to do. The other significant person mentioned in this diary entry is Baron Castlebright, the director of the Northern Expansion Company who, while being a private citizen, was also very much part of the government. Castlebright agreed 100% with Hadrius's policies, as it was rare that Barristone carried out its various plots directly, instead preferring to use the NEC. Since the ignition, there has seemingly been a never-ending avalanche of accusations against Castlebright, the most notable of which is stealing over 400,000 square miles of land belonging to foreign nations that saw the NEC make a fortune from the Barristone government. He was a man who seemingly took a pleasure in breaking the law, and while some have cast him as a lovable rogue, it is important to remember many, many people suffered and died because of his actions. Incidentally, Christoph V, King of Barristone, is mentioned, but it is universally agreed he was not significant. The Barist delegation's arrival was always going to be the middle ground between the practical non-event that was the arrival of King of Marika and the over-the-top ludicrous parade that was Emperor Varence's entrance. It would be dignified with suitable and appropriate grandeur. Varence flashes money around to impress people, but everyone was well aware that Barristone was the richest country in the world and didn't waste it covering everything in gold. Varence still didn't understand the difference between treasure and wealth. Treasure was piles of diamonds and gold bars that you hoarded in vaults. Wealth was what you invested to improve your situation. Barris' wealth paid for ships, trains, factories. It created more wealth, which created a better world. An endless cycle of prosperity. People think Barristone is powerful because they have the best weapons are idiots. They have the financial resources to maintain a global presence. They can simply outlast their enemies. Naturally enough, Barris' delegation would come by ship. We possessed the greatest navy in the world and controlled the city's major harbor. 
As with the other two major powers, strict rules have been laid down about the number of military personnel in the city, and all were wary that the others would use their arrival as an opportunity to sneak more soldiers in. Well, specifically with the Barrists, they were worried that we would bring in more warships, like hindsight. And while this only showed their strategic misunderstanding of the situation, as hindsight alone was enough, it was a deal we were happy to keep to. The king's yacht, Magnificence, was to deliver King Christoph, Chancellor Hadrius, and our own illustrious leader, Baron Castlebright. Has one ship ever held three such important personages? Granted, the king's power is somewhat limited, and with his drinking, that's not a bad thing. But nonetheless, he is an important symbol, and when he wants to, he can play the part. But Hadrius and Castlebright, they're practically irreplaceable. Hadrius knows the reality of what we're doing in the world and stays out of the company's way. Not like some of the representatives in the chamber, calling us thieves and murderers. Castlebright might be the best director the company has ever had. He's a man with vision. Magnificence was a ship worthy of the name. 554 feet long, crew of 310, and normally a number of marines. But not on this journey. It arrived just after noon. Hindsight normally restricted itself to small trips around the harbor, just to work the engines. But for this, she actually left the harbor and escorted the royal yacht in. Its guns blasted a salute as the yacht finished its journey. A mixture of Barris soldiers, company soldiers, and locally recruited police were there, present in dress uniforms. His Royal Highness did what he does on such occasions, looking regal and making polite conversation with people he had nothing in common with. While behind him came Hadrius and Castlebright, with far less attention, but that was how they liked it. To an uninformed observer, it would have looked like the king was the most important person there, which I think is how all three of them like it. An elegant carriage was on hand to transport the king to the Palace of Endless Gold, his residence while he was in the city. There was an escort of company soldiers, as well as locally recruited police, to take Hadrius and Castlebright to the company headquarters to do actual work. After talking to Vasca, the facts seemed to speak for themselves. Something big was happening in the city, and we didn't mean the Congress. The Brotherhood seemed to be at the heart of it, and as they were the attack dog of the Draven Empire, it seemed like they were to blame. There was a banquet and ball that evening in the Draven part of the city, and there would be someone there who could answer our questions. Unsurprisingly, I had been invited, and I could bring a guest. As I've mentioned before, spies don't tend to bring guests, but on that night I did. I soon realized that Vasca was a very poor spy. She left my apartment and promised to prepare for the event. I had perhaps overestimated the chances that Vasca had been to such an event before, as when we met again at my apartment she looked barely different to when we had parted. Black trousers, white shirt, grey jacket, and black soldier's boots. But really her outfit was not the biggest problem. She wore a double hip holster, one carrying her fearsome single-shot pistol, the other a normal revolver, a vicious hunting knife, and a few other killing tools hung off her belt. Vasca had spent the majority of her life in the Legion, and they were allowed to carry weapons everywhere. But everywhere didn't really include rooms that contained more than one king. Vasca point-blank refused to enter unarmed, but I convinced her to take just the one gun and be slightly more discreet about some of her other items. I'd never felt nervous crossing the border into Draven territory before. I'd done it illegally dozens of times. 
but this time when I pressed some money into the border guard's hand, I was convinced he was going to betray me, but he got us across the border without incident. I hailed a carriage and we were soon on our way to the banquet. I felt mildly ridiculous sitting in the carriage next to Vasca. Even if my diplomatic and espionage career survived this, my social life would be ruined. In other circumstances, bringing the notorious Chloe Vasca to a party would have been a sensation, but she had dethroned a king, and fellow monarchs disapproved of that sort of thing, so I thought it best to claim she was some other legionnaire and hope no one would know differently. The banquet was being held in the Sunset Palace, so-called because it had been built so the then man who commissioned it could enjoy the best view of the setting sun. In another city, the Sunset Palace would have been the biggest folly by far, but not in Korriban. The city contained several dozen palaces, ranging from sumptuous and beautiful residences of royalty to secure fortresses to decrepit shells. And there was another dozen or so of in-progress palaces and grand buildings where construction had ceased for when the Aurelian Empire fell. The Sunset Palace was certainly one of the more impressive palaces in the city, and the Draven authorities had been careful to maintain its splendor to host its emperor. The palace contained over 600 rooms, ranging from grand ballrooms and banqueting halls to immense libraries and an observatory. It had been built 400 years ago by Lord Ashlan, the power behind the throne of the boy emperor Visca II. Ashlan had been seen by many in the court as a foreigner and outsider, practically a barbarian to their civilized eyes, and the Sunset Palace had been a monument to Ashlan's sensitivity to this issue. He had won dozens of battles and rose to the top of the political pyramid of the empire, but still felt inferior to the nobility. It had taken twenty-two years to build, and cost enough money to fund military campaigns or poor relief for the whole empire, but Vasca was not impressed by it. As a practice diplomat, I adopted an attitude of respectful consideration, which was supposed to convey that, yes, the building was impressive, but you wanted to see the palaces we have back home. In truth, it was hard not to be overawed by the Sunset Palace. As we approached the gates to the palace, we were stuck in the inevitable queue of carriages, but soon we were confronted by a trio of draven soldiers, a suitably noble officer and two more average soldiers. After inspecting my invitation, they cast a worried glance over Vasca, who I explained was a highly decorated legionnaire, which seemed to satisfy them. We joined the crowds of impeccably well-dressed people and moved inside the palace. If possible, the people inside were even more impressive than the palace. Several hundred of the richest and most powerful people in the world put in one building with the sole ambition of being the most impressive. If the palace was a folly because of the time, money, and resources poured into its construction, then the outfits, many of which would not be worn again, were even worse. Some people were playing clever political games. The barrist Duchess Ariana Cole was displaying the wealth and prosperity of her nation, and that she could afford quite so many diamonds, whereas others were little better than peacocks. Count Ryson has supposedly mortgaged his estates to pay for his extravagances. It took a little while to be seated, but when we were, I found that I was on the very fringes of the room. Vasco did not have the patience for these events, and more than once I had to literally restrain her. I explained that first, we had to wait for the meal to be over. Second, we were not going to speak to the emperor. He would have dozens of petitioners, and the chance of having a private conversation of him were nil. On the other hand, 
I did have an in with the Draven Foreign Minister. Politicians, even senior ones like the Foreign Minister, were ultimately replaceable, and so there was a good chance I would be permitted a discreet word with him. The meal went on for some time, eight courses, and then finally we stood. We moved into the adjoining ballroom where dancing was already starting. Vasco grabbed my arm tightly and asked if we were finally ready. I wrenched my arm free and scowled at her before striding off towards a beautiful young woman. As I approached, the woman broke into a broad smile, rushed forward, and threw her arms around me. Since the ignition, or perhaps because of it, international politics has adopted a more austere and sober appearance. Most of the balls and parties are gone, and groups of dull men and women sit around tables, slowly debating the important issues of the day. There are strict agendas, accurate minutes, and a whole host of regulations, rules, and custom that dictate how this business is conducted. It's undeniable that this form is more transparent and accountable, but there was something innately interesting and exciting about the way these things used to be done. Clandestine meetings were arranged by suspicious go-betweens, people discussed plots while they danced elegantly around ballrooms, and if you wanted to know what a minister was planning, it wasn't a bad idea to start by asking their mistress. There is still corruption, mistresses, and plotting, but it's all become rather businesslike. A man like Antonius Mare would not do well in such a world. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at the weirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. Sira Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Perrin Bosch was played by Zane Sexton. Pavan Keller was played by Kyle Nishimura. Find Kyle on Twitter at SplitSeams or contact via email kdnishimura at me.com. <laughs>